Welcome to the teaching ministry of Temple Baptist Church. While we hope you can join us in person, our prayer is that this message will encourage you to love God and serve Him in a deeper way. We are in week six of our series called David. And today we are on our last installment. I don't know if you've ever read a book and then watched a movie and then you were so disappointed with the movie because the book gave so much more detail. That's kind of how I feel this series is. We have just skimmed the surface of David's life in the last six weeks. There's so much more. And that's why I want to encourage you, take the time over the next week or two and read First and Second Samuel. They are like blockbusters, like they are a bestseller. Once you get into it, you won't be able to set it down. It's an absolutely fascinating read. And for the last five weeks, we have looked at events that took place before David had the crown put on his head, before he was anointed king. Events that helped shape David's life before He wore the royal robes. But this morning, we are gonna look at an event that happened during his reign. A story that is both known inside the church and outside the church. An event that had severe ramifications, seer repercussions. A story that would leave its mark on generations to follow. Of course, I'm referring to the story of David and Bathsheba. And this morning I want to address a subject that I never heard growing up as a teenager. This message is really far different than any other message we've done in this book or this study that we've done. I think I never heard about it growing up because I think it was completely uncomfortable to talk about a church, something that you leave behind closed doors. And I grew up in a great church. I had a great pastor who loved people and certainly invested in me. But I never heard a subject actually ever on lust. And today I want to deal with that secret sin, lust. I'm gonna try my very best not to dance around it. We're gonna address it directly. And honestly, I think this message is for both men and women, although I would say it's probably a bigger struggle for men. But women, it's true for you as well. Lust and affairs. Really, we're gonna take time to look at the original sex in the city storyline. And when I'm talking this morning, I don't want you to be thinking of somebody else. This message is for all of us this morning. I would be shocked this morning if this is not a battle that every man faces here today. The one thing that I have discovered and learned and watched and observed is that lust will ruin you. It will win and it will conquer you if you don't get a hold of it. 
if you don't deal with it. It will overcome you. It will drain you. And the thing about lust, it comes at the most inappropriate times, out of nowhere. It can flash right in front of your eyes. I was thinking a few years ago, most of you know uh, that I, my previous church is called Stone Ridge Fellowship, but before we changed the name, it was also called Temple Baptist Church. And one day I'm in my office and I wanted to check something out on the website, so I typed in templebaptistchurch.ca to go to the website, and there was the website. And then up in the corner, out of nowhere, it was this flashing sign that said, Baptist Girls. And I had never seen Baptist Girls like that at our church before. I was like, where did that come from? Someone was clever enough to be able to know that a lot of activity was happening on our website and so kind of clicked a little bit of an invitation. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. You don't have to go to some dark, dingy store in a dark alley. It's right in the comfort of your own home. And young guys, young college students, and young married men, I wanna challenge you to get a hold of this, or it will take you down. It's one of those sins that nobody really can know because you can have it and do it in the privacy of your own home. But seriously, it will ruin you if you don't get control of it. Now, of all the Bible characters in, um, in the Bible, I would say David has to be in my top three that I really would have liked to have met and to see a little bit of what his life was all about. That roller coaster ride that we have been identifying with for the last uh, number of weeks. David is um, he's a man of enormous passion. No one can write like David does. He writes with such passion and such honesty. And that kind of passion that David has works its way out in many different ways. And those who are very gifted often have the greatest abilities, the greatest battles, I mean. Those who have the greatest imaginations will battle this as well. This morning, we're going to look at a time in Israel's history when the country is unified. There are no factions within the nations. Republicans and Democrats actually agree and love each other. Liberals and conservatives are hugging at every meeting. David is king. David is their hero. He's the unquestionable leader, the political leader, the theological leader, the social leader, their military leader. His word is law. And when David becomes king and when that flag flies over their nation, there is a great pride more than ever before when David becomes king. The prosperity under David is magnificent. And the enemy, every enemy feared Israel under David's reign. A man of war, a man of courage, loved by many, especially women. In fact, when you study more carefully David and his life, you'll discover what we know is that he had at least 17 wives and many concubines. And yet, he was not satisfied. There's a theory out there that if you have enough women, you will be satisfied. Untrue. Because there's always the unknown. 
David was on an upward plane, doing so well. And then one night, he jumps over the guardrail, jumps over the balcony and over the guardrail of his life, and he plummets to a dark, dingy ditch. And that's where we're going to pick up our story this morning. Now, of course, David, David knew better, of course. David didn't just suddenly fall. No tree that is rotten within just suddenly falls. No church suddenly splits. No merit suddenly collapses. No one suddenly falls. It's a process. You're in the process, I'm in the process. It will always be an ongoing process. And the enemy, our enemy is so patient and so brilliant. And he will take years to drop a little here, a little there, a little there, just to keep your interest and curiosity. As I said, David's life is on the, on the rise. Like it's, everything is going upwards. Never lost a battle. Can you believe it? Never lost a battle. Israel, under David's reign, never lost one war. Incredible to think about it. David had expanded Israel's borders from 6,000 square miles to 60,000 square miles. The prosperity, the pride, the patriotism was at an all-time high. And he builds a beautiful palace, a home for himself, his wives, and his children. He keeps adding to his harem, and it weakened his soul. In fact, in 2 Samuel 5.13, it says David took more wives and more concubines, and polygamy weakened his soul. His opinion poll was at an all-time high. It's off the charts, maximum power, maximum prosperity, maximum luxury as a lifestyle, the respect of his army, a palace and all of its convenience. And then there's the eventful night that everything changes. That's why I say oftentimes to teenagers and young men and young couples, be careful. Be carefully manage the habits that you are developing now. If you have a wandering eye now, it will only intensify as you get older. And the reality is you never outgrow it. And if not monitored, it will become out of control and it will bring you down. I know, I, and I've had people say this to me, they say, oh, well, I don't think that could ever really happen to me. Really? Don't ever say it can't happen to you because it happens every day, all the time. Some of my closest friends didn't get control of it, and it brought them down. Some of my closest colleagues in ministry, I started counting them last night, and I, I didn't have enough fingers to count. It 
In 2 Samuel chapter one, all the way through chapter 11, David is experiencing victory after victory after victory. And it seems as though David is invincible. But oh, how the mighty fall. In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, or 10, 12, so if you think you are standing firm, be careful. Be careful that you don't fall. Take heed lest you fall. Even though it seems to be the farthest thing in your mind, don't deceive yourself to think it cannot happen to you. It can and will if you don't control it. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. And with that, would you please take your Bibles or your smartphone and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible or smartphone, it also should be on the screen for you here this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 11. In verse one, it says, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David remained home. Hmm. David stayed home when kings normally would go off to war. Smells like trouble. Remember, David is at the pinnacle of his reign. He is enjoying success after success and prosperity. He has it all. Everything that you would ever want in life. There's nothing that David's hand doesn't touch that it doesn't turn to gold. He lacks nothing. He is living the American dream. He is the envy not of just his own people, but of people around the world. He's a legend in his own time. And parents would pray that their little Johnny would grow up to be just like David. David is the number one name in the baby book. And why would you want to call your son anything other but little Davy? Look at our great king. Look what he's done for us. He's the king, but he doesn't go to battle. Why? Why? Why doesn't David go off to battle? Well, the Bible doesn't really tell us why. Uh, perhaps he thought he wasn't needed. Perhaps he thought his commanding officer, Joab, was confident and capable enough to take those uh, Ammonites out. Perhaps David thought, you know, anyone can take an Ammonite out. We can take it with one hand tied behind our backs. But he stays home. And one thing I've learned is idle hands can get you in deep trouble. My grandma used to always say to me, remember, Donald, you know this expression? Idle hands are, anybody know? The devil's workshop. I remember hearing that as a kid so much. And David lounges around. When you have more, times on, more time on your hands, sometimes bad things can happen when you don't keep yourself occupied. So battle, war's taking place. David decides to stay at home. We'll pick up the story in verse two. And then one evening, David got up from his bed, walked around on the roof of the palace, and from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. Now David's supposed to be out at war 
with his men, but he's not. He's decided to stay home. He's relaxing in the palace while his own men are putting their life on the line to save his kingdom. And then look what happens. He gets off of his bed, perhaps after a light snooze on his satin sheets. He gets up in his Calvin Klein pajamas. He looks around and sees all those priceless treasures, his Rembrandts, his Picassos, his leather sofa from Costco. (laughs) And he begins to think to himself, it looks pretty good, doesn't it? Look at me. He walks to the palace and sees the palace guards at every column ready to die for David and to kill if asked and called upon. His spirit is restless and he makes his way outside. And as he goes out into the balcony in the twilight of night, he sees this kingdom and marvels at the skyline. He sees it all and it looks good. And as he's scanning the cityscape, he notices a beautiful woman. The Bible actually says a very beautiful woman. She's a knockout. And he sees the silhouette of Miss America and inquires about him. David is at the guardrail of the balcony and at the guardrail of his life. I want to tell you, David's fall did not start on the rooftop. David's fall does not start here in 2 Samuel chapter 11. David's problem started much, much earlier. And what a man sows, the Bible says, a man will reap. And David's lounging around the house. And David's alone wandering around. And evening came. David, courageous, the one who takes out a giant, warrior, fearless in battle. He's probably at 50 years of age in this story. We're first introduced to him earlier in our series when he was a teenager. That's when he was thrown onto the world stage as a, as a young teenager who takes out Goliath. We, we read through his life story. We see when he was in his, in his early 20s, when he's in his uh, 30s. And now we're reading the story when he's in his 50s. He's middle-aged, and we find out he's at the peak of his popularity and prosperity. In fact, life doesn't get any better than this. This is the time of life that you get to really enjoy. Many of you are in that season right now. Your children are a little more independent. Perhaps even grandchildren are, are soon arriving, and you are enjoying life. It's a great time of life. And so many of you can relate to this season of life that David finds himself in. And some of you here this morning might say, oh, 50, that's so old. It happened so quick. And you'll find yourself there. And David, one night, forgets everything that he has. His family. He doesn't think about what this will mean for his children to trust. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German theologian who was killed during the Nazi occupation wrote this. Satan doesn't fill us with hatred toward God. He fills us with forgetfulness of God. 
David didn't hate God, he just forgot him. It's right here. Everything that David believed, everything that David lived by, he forgot. He threw it out the window. He's at the height of his lust. The great monarch staring at a lady who's bathing. At this moment, he is not thinking about what he has back at home. He's not thinking about his wives. He's not thinking about the trust of his children. He has one thing on his mind. And this woman is a very beautiful woman. She's breathtaking. She's gorgeous. The Bible says he wants her. David has all these women. He has all these wives. He has all these concubines, a harem filled with beautiful women. But he wants her. He wants that one. It's one of his neighbors that he's never met before. And he inquires of her. In verse three, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't that Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? Look what he finds out about her. By the way, what we just read there is very rare. When you are giving people's genealogy in the Bible, they always refer to the father, perhaps even the grandfather. They never give the spouse. So very interesting here that the spouse's name is given. I think it was a subtle way, perhaps, how the servant just suddenly, subtly, um, subtly just gives that message to David. She's a married woman. She's the wife of Uriah. She's a married woman. She's married to one of your mighty men. I kind of wonder if that was a message to say, David, back off. Back off, David. She's married. But even with that little piece of information, David says, I want to meet her and sends a soldier out for her. Whatever David asks, David asks for, he gets. The king's word is law. No one's going to say, David, I think you've crossed the line. What the king wants, the king gets. And the guards are happy to oblige David. When the king says, I want that woman in my house, that woman will be in his home. And David's spark of desire turns into a raging fire. That's why the Bible tells us to flee from youthful lust. It never says fight. It never says fight it. It says run from it. And let me tell you, you cannot run and lust at the same time. Don't stick around trying to fight it. Flee from it. I heard one pastor say, and I'm in agreement with him, we are most vulnerable when we are grazing. We don't do well grazing. You don't do well grazing. I don't do well grazing. And when I jump over the rail, let me just say, it spells T-R-O-U-B-L-E, trouble. I'm not thinking about fulfilling my destiny for God. I'm just thinking I have one thing I wanna do. 
How many of us have heard our kids say, I'm so bored, there's nothing to do. I'm saying, bless your children with work. Hey, honey, the car needs to be washed. And you remember all those crumbs you sprinkled all over the back seat? Yeah, you could vacuum that. In fact, honey, I love you so much, I'm gonna get you to wash, dry, fold, iron all the clothes today, because I love you that much. We don't graze well, we just don't. Bathsheba is a married woman. She's married to one of David's finest mighty men. Uriah is out protecting the king. You read farther in the text and you realize this is, a, this is a great man, Uriah. A man of impeccable honor. A moral conduct, a moral code that he lives by. And he is told, David, that she's the wife of another man and it doesn't stop him. He's, he's so full of lust. And when you are so full of lust, it becomes unstoppable. That's why I say you better get a handle now or it will bring you down. And David sends for her and we know the story. They spend the evening together, the night together. And perhaps before dawn broke in the morning, under the cover of darkness, perhaps she tiptoes back to her house and David says, well, that's done. Not quite. Stolen water is sweet. And I am sure, I'm sure on that bed of ecstasy, it would only last though for a few minutes. The question is, is it worth it? Never. F.B. Myers, a writer, theologian, says this. This is the bitterness of all, knowing that suffering need not bend. The harvesting of one's own sowing, this is pain. Neglect of one's heart. And people say, well, what was she supposed to do? How do you say no to the king? You can't say no. The scriptures don't record any fight at all. And I started trying to think of Bathsheba's situation. Well, Bathsheba is home alone. Her husband has been away at war for I don't know how long now. She's lonely. This is just kind of how it works. And both forget about God. And word comes back, I'm pregnant. David thought he could wash his hand and go, it's done. But she's pregnant. And guess what David does? He panics. Didn't we talk about this a couple weeks ago? David, a couple weeks ago, he panicked. He was so full of fear that he, uh, he, he caught himself. He was doing all kinds of lies, making up stories, making irrational decisions because he panicked. Remember when he panicked a couple weeks ago and what happened? He told a very costly lie. A man lost his life, his entire family, his extended family. In fact, 85 members of that man's family died because David was panicking and he was fearful and he made some irrational decisions and told some costly lies. Well, David is in panic mode again. And he's fearful. So David has got to come up with a plan to cover I can't let people know what's happened here. So he sends for Uriah. 
He sends for Bathsheba's husband to try to cover up the mess. He brings him off the battlefield. You can read it there in that chapter, chapter 11. He tells Joab, a message is sent to Joab. Joab, send Uriah back home so he can give me the report of how things are going out on the battlefield. Seems like an innocent request. And so Uriah does, he arrives home. He gives David the message, things are going well, the battle's going well. And David says, that's great, that's, that's great news, that's just what I wanted to hear. Now listen, before you go back to battle, you just live down the street there. Go home, spend the evening with your wife, and then you can go back tomorrow. And Uriah goes home, but he doesn't go into his home. For some reason he thinks, how can I enjoy the pleasures of my wife one night when I know my comrades, my fellow soldiers are under, the, under a blanket of darkness with an enemy ready to pounce on them? No, I can't do that. And so he sleeps outside the front door. Well, that's not what David had planned. So David has to come up with another plan. Uriah, don't go, don't go back to the battle today. In fact, I want you to come over. We're going to have a smorgasbord. We're going to have a big feast. And David's got it in his mind. He's already preconceived something. He knows that if I could just get Uriah drunk, then I can manipulate him. And so he, the alcohol is flowing that night. And sure enough, Uriah has a little too much. The Bible says he was drunk. And then David sends him home. I kind of picture David looking over the balcony watching Uriah make his way home as maybe Uriah is whistling and kind of maybe stumbling along the road. And he stops at the front door of his house and doesn't go in. My goodness, what do you do now? David's still in this panic mode, right? I've got to cover up this. And so he's only left with one thing. It's not my number one choice, but Uriah's gonna have to die. I'm gonna have to kill Uriah. And when you act in panic, which I said before, you don't think logically. In fact, you usually don't think at all. You simply react. And in the midst of lies and cover-up, you discover that you cannot even escape or untangle the mess that you've made. I mean, even when David gets him drunk and tries to manipulate him, he doesn't compromise his standards. So David has to come up with a plan and the plan is a death warrant. The next day, he sends for Uriah and he sends him back to the field. I feel like a little, maybe perhaps pat on the back Uriah, you're doing a great job. I've written a letter for your commanding officer, Joab. Just put it in your satchel and deliver it when you get there. Wow. David knows that's gonna be the last day Uriah's gonna be alive. How can he live with himself? David, what has happened? David, your heart was so bent toward God. When did this happen? Where did this happen? Like, why did this happen? I don't think, by the way, that David has a carefree attitude. I think it's eating him alive. That's why perhaps maybe he wrote these verses and we saw them earlier. 
It says in Psalm 32, three, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. I think this, this is weighing heavy on David. Joe, of course, gets the message. There's no question. No question like, oh, I don't know why David wants this. Maybe I should find out more. No. What the king asked for, no questions asked. I'll do it. And David now adds murder to that list right under the word adultery. And when word gets back to Bathsheba, we find out she mourns. She mourns long enough for everybody to see her. And then the Bible says, David married her and she became one of his wives. But look at the last phrase of that chapter. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. I don't think David is relaxing and taking it easy. I don't think he's just sipping lemonade out on the balcony during the aftermath of adultery. I think he has lots of sleepless nights. I think while he lays in bed at night and looks at the ceiling, I think he sees his sins written on the ceiling. I think when he goes to the corridors of the palace, I think he sees it written right on the walls. It's ever before him. I think when David is eating his supper meal, he's choking over the food because he sees it written on his plate. I think he sees it in the eyes of his counselors. He's living a lie and he cannot escape the truth. And he has become a songless composer. I think that's why when David writes in Psalms 51, he says, restore the joy of my salvation. I think that's why when he was unstable and insecure, he said, renew a fast, a steadfast spirit within me. Now, sin does that, by the way. It's part of the wages of sin and everly demands. When David says, renew a steadfast spirit in me, it kind of implies it's been a long, long time since I've had it. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. David actually said those words a few chapters earlier when he found out his best friend Jonathan had been killed and that the previous king Saul had been killed. He exclaimed, oh, how the mighty have fallen. He was so brokenhearted. But here we have an example here as well, how the mighty have fallen. Sex is that powerful. It has taken down kings and queens and presidents and prime ministers. And she returned to her house. I like what Chuck Swindoll says in a brief statement. He says, we see the raw and open sewage of David's life. Right here. I don't know if you're keeping track or not of David's sin in this story. Lust, adultery, hypocrisy, murder, 
How could a man, a man after God's own heart, fall to such a level? I think if you, are, you and I are completely honest with ourselves, we know exactly how that could happen. I think the hymn writer got it right when he wrote, prone to, le- Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God that I love. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. I will say this morning, I am very thankful. I am very thankful for good, godly parents and their instruction. So thankful for mentors who told me, guard yourself, Donald. Guard yourself. Guard your heart. Because if you don't, Donald, it will take you to places that you never thought you would ever go. Perhaps the next time you're at the guardrail of your life, you may ask yourself this question. If I should do this, who will it affect? Sometimes we deceive ourselves and think it's just us. It's just us. It always, it always affects more than just us. Just think if David had paused just for a moment and asked the question, does this honor God? Will this affect my family? This story could be completely different. Men, women, let's leave a legacy for our families. Let's leave a story for them that says something like this, he ran and he ran well. And he finished well. We don't have usually problems starting well. We usually have problems finishing well. Now maybe you're here today and if you were to kind of look at where you are, you know you have gone over the guardrail. You have gone beyond the point of no return. I wanna say to you today, get back. Get back on the track. That's what's so amazing about God's grace, by the way. That God's grace, beyond my comprehension, somehow just reaches a little farther than our sin. That's the grace of God. Not that there won't be consequences, because that is the reality. There are always consequences to sin, but God's grace is great enough to forgive and get you back on track. So I don't know where you are today, but don't let another day go by where you are not fulfilling your destiny that God has for your life. Well, Donald, how, how do I, how do I, how, how do I prevent this? Like, how? I think one of the things that we could do, first of all, is just acknowledge our weakness. We're not invincible. All of us, all of us are capable. So acknowledge your weakness. And I'd say guard your leisure. Guard your leisure. It may also be a good idea to have someone that you're accountable to. I heard 
a pastor just saying he's an accountability group and he said we asked each other questions every week here's the question he says in my accountability by the way this pastor's like I don't know he's in his 80s so this is not talking about a young pastor like still trying to make sure I finish well and he says I, I meet with a group of guys and he says these are the questions that I ask we ask each other have you been anywhere this week with another woman that might seem compromising have you exposed yourself to any sexual explicit material? Have you spent adequate time in the Bible and, and prayer? Have you given priority to your family? And here's the last question they ask to each other. Have you lied to me? It's called accountability. I would say maybe another thing that might be helpful is rehearse the consequences. Rehearse what the consequences will be. I wrote a couple things, Andy, uh, Randy Alcorn, who's an author, maybe many of you know, he listed a whole bunch, but he was thinking through himself. If I was to jump over that guardrail, here's some of the consequences, I won't read them all, but here's some. He says, I would grieve the one who redeemed me, I would drag his name through the mud, I would follow in a list of people who have fallen. I would inflict untold hurt on my wife, my loyal wife. I would lose my wife's confidence and trust. I would hurt my loving children. I would destroy my example to my children what it is to trust God. Why believe a man that would leave mom for someone else? He says, perhaps I would lose my wife and children forever. He, he says, for him, that he may create a form of guilt that is awfully hard to shake, even though God has forgiven him. But could he ever forgive himself? Hard to shake sometimes, that guilt. Consequence maybe of having flashbacks with memories that haunt me and hinder me from being intimate with my wife. Consequence maybe of wasting years of my training. This really hit me when he said this. I think one of the consequences would be for me is that I would forfeit my years of trying to convince my father who Jesus is. And it would build just a stronger argument not to trust preachers. He says, I'm thinking through the, the potential consequences undermining the Christian community and all that has worked to do. Oh, there's so much more, but we've just kind of done a, an autopsy of a moral failure. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. I'm gonna ask you, never forget this message. Never forget this message. If you don't get a hold of it, it will ruin you, it will destroy you. So guard your life, guard your life this morning. Let's pray. Our Father,
we confess we're just mere men and women. And the same heart that beats in David beats in us. And Lord, this morning, this chat has been much more serious than what we normally do here on a Sunday morning. But Lord, your word, I believe, has spoken. And I wanna pray for each person here this morning. Perhaps they find themselves right at the guardrail of their life, ready to jump over. And God, I just pray that maybe we take a few moments, maybe just begin to rehearse what would the consequences be if I should do this. And then God, we don't want to ever leave here without people having hope. So for those who perhaps have crossed over, have jumped off that balcony, God, I pray that they could know today that they could be restored with you today. That there is grace sufficient to forgive sins and start a fresh and anew. So Lord, do what you need to do among us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.